Okay, here we go. Here we go. Well, let's pray briefly and we will we will uh, go ahead and get back into it. My hope, my hope is that next Sunday will be wait, next Sunday. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday um, in this particular um, critique of the Reformed Pedo-Baptistic view. So I'm, again, I'm hoping to cover quite a bit of ground, so I'm going to go at a, a nice clip just like it last time. But please don't let my quick pace uh, stop you from asking uh, any questions where there is lack of clarity. Um, but yes, let's, uh, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's help, uh, please. God, we're thankful to be able to be here this morning and to continue on studying what the best we can discern your scripture says about these things. We pray that you would give us humble hearts and minds as we do so, and that, again, this would not be just a intellectual theological exercise, but that we would come to a greater appreciation of who you are and how you have knit together redemptive history according to your plan. Uh, so we ask us, uh, we ask again that you give us minds that uh, seek faith uh, with understanding and humility. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So if you are, again, it's never lost on me that there are people in here who get to come in the, who are show up or here for Sunday school like once every five or six Sunday schools. And so you may end up being a little bit lost. We're in the middle of critiquing the Reformed paedo-baptistic understanding of baptism, which of course spawns from their understand, understanding of the covenants in general. And that essentially means, uh, well, it doesn't essentially mean, but in, 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 the, in the context that you're probably most familiar is, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian? That's just a really easy way to say it in terms of why do they baptize infants as Reformed folks versus why we baptize believers as Reformed folks. We've been going through that, and we're continuing through that today. Um, we now arrive to the argument, having already discussed Acts 238, 239-239. We now arrive at the argument from household baptisms. There are five household baptisms mentioned in the Bible. And if you recall, the argument from household baptism is that, well, uh, you know, households includes infants. Households were baptized. Therefore, infants were baptized. That's basically how the, the argument goes. It's not really the core argument, but it is a kind of an ancillary argument that our uh, pedo-baptistic friends and brothers and sisters use to support the larger argument, which is really from the idea of the uh, mixed covenant, circumcision, replacing baptism, and therefore, because the children received the sign in the old covenant, they receive it in the new. So here's just supposed to be some representative examples of that. It's not so much an argument um, for it. We're only going to look at two such instances of household baptism out of the five. Does anyone know why? why I'm only, does, it, does it feel like I'm sliding you? Why do you think we're only looking at two of them? By now, that is a very close answer. They are the only one. So yeah, we're only going to look at two because in the other three, the households baptized are explicitly described as Acts ten forty four through forty eight. Explicitly heard the word. Acts eighteen eight. They believed in the Lord. And then with Stephanus, they were the first converts in Achaia who committed themselves to the servants of the saints. Okay, so it, it should be noted that Baptists do not object to household baptism uh, in light of household conversion. Okay, there's household conversion. There should be 
uh, household baptism. Let me make one point here that ends up being critical. Uh, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, and, and perhaps Reformed Anglican brothers and sisters will say, well, um, you know, that, that, that to, to say that a whole household's believing or hearing the gospel doesn't necessarily imply that every single person in it heard the gospel. You could refer to the household uh, hearing the gospel and not necessarily include an infant. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be so precise. Um, Baptists, I would say, should agree with this, should agree with this and just say, but the same thing cuts both ways. If not everyone, if it can be said that, you know, the whole household heard the word and received the word and it doesn't mean every single person in the household. Well, then when it comes around to saying the whole household was baptized, it doesn't imply the whole, every single person in the household was baptized. OK, does that make sense? I think it's fine. I think it's very probable in many cases. Um, and there's other examples in the New Testament that have nothing to do with baptism that refer to a whole household. And yet it, there's clearly uh, if there was like, for example, an infant in the household, it, the, in the context, what they're trying to say about the household, it wouldn't even apply. And yet, again, it cuts both ways. If we're if they're to say, well, it doesn't mean that everyone believed or doesn't believe that every single person heard. Baptists are saying, yeah, you may be right. And so and therefore, in the same breath, not every single one of them was, was baptized. either. OK, so it's kind of a it's a wash. That point is a bit of a wash, but you should be aware of it. Because it is an important one. Uh, this, let's look at Acts 16, 14 through 15. If you have your copy of the scripture, this is the conversion of Lydia. The conversion of Lydia, uh, one of the two where there is not explicit, um, explicit mention of the whole household uh, believing, but certainly Lydia does. So in verse 14, it says this. Uh, so, well, let me just back up. On the Sabbath day, uh, they're over to, they, they, for, they went to Philippi. Um, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Then verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, this is like fine silks, fine silks, fine linen. That's what purple goods is. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So she paid attention to it. She believed it. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, it almost gives a sense that they were like, nah, we're going to go ahead and just continue back to the house. And, no, 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 please come. And she, but eventually she, she prevailed. Um, so what are we supposed to say about Lydia? Of course, obviously, we can point out that there are no infants explicitly mentioned here at all. So you still get kind of a, well, uh, uh, well let's just, you know, you just kind of have to read the infants in. Um, you have to, you cannot, to argue that infants were or were present or absent in Lydia's household is speculative, contrary to R. Scott Clark, who makes many passionate statements with just unwavering certainty in his writing and is somehow reformed true north. I don't know how, who dubbed him that. But uh, it cannot be reasonably argued that there were no children in this household. That's what he says. That's what he says. Instead, multiple factors seem to give positive reason to think infants were not present 
in the household. Here, here's, here's the list. I have them for you here. Number one, no husband is mentioned. Okay? Her household is described as her own. That's not something that, that that's not how you would describe a household in the first century where there is a, a husband there. It would not be her household. Okay? Number two, she was on business for herself selling fabrics. Not only that, she had traveled hundreds of miles away from Thyatira to conduct this business in Philippi. Okay? And finally, she felt the freedom, which is perhaps the most outrageous one, if she, if she, if she was otherwise married. She felt the freedom to invite a group of men to come stay at her home. Okay? Um, and so no one can be no one can be certain, okay, but certain circumstantial evidence uh, does seem to suggest uh, that li- that that she is a single businesswoman or a wealthy widow who didn't have a bunch of diaper changing responsibilities, which is why she's able to travel hundreds of miles away. Uh, she could have grown uh, she, she could have grown children, should certainly have servants and such. Um, and her household likely did include, again, older children and servants. But it doesn't seem like, the, because even though it is speculative, both ways, admittedly, both ways, the, the circumstantial evidence seems to picture a woman who doesn't have infants because she's doing these kinds of things, okay? Um, not, certainly not some kind of conclusive argument, but that, the whole point is it's not conclusive anyways, and, the, and some of this evidence suggests that she's not in the diaper-changing stage, which allows her to be um, doing all these things with no husband uh, there present in the home. She's, she's, she's a bit of a go-getter for the first century, a woman who's crushing it. Seriously, I'm traveling hundreds of miles. I'm selling, I'm selling fine linens. She was doing well for herself. Okay, Those were expensive garments and, sil- and, and, and cloths and silks or whatever. And um, so that's, that, that is... Uh, that is how about all I have to say about Lydia in Acts chapter 16, 14 through 14 through 16 there. Well, if we are 14 through 15, excuse me. Well, the next one that we're going to look at happens to be in the exact same chapter, and that is Acts 16, 31 through 34. And this is the Philippian jailer. It's this great story. Um, the Philippian jailer is going to try to... Um, uh, he's going to he's going to try to harm himself. He knew his life was over if he lost these prisoners, right? Paul cried with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself." Verse twenty eight. For we're all here. Verse thirty. Um, verse thirty. He says. Then he brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wombs. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. And the ESV has this literal... They didn't want to make any kind of... They had this awkward phrase of that last verse. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay? Um, again, I want to suggest that there are no infants mentioned, so their presence or absence is a matter of a bit speculative. And yet again, there are factors suggesting that the whole household believed. And we can, we're going to play the same card here. The whole household rejoiced. 
the whole household believed. Not the whole household didn't all every single one rejoiced, and not necessarily every single one uh, was baptized either or believed. Uh, so here's what I have here. Look at these a couple of points here. Paul and Silas spoke the word to all who were in the house. So all of them heard the word spoken to them. Number two, the whole household is said to rejoice. The whole household rejoices, it says. Um, we might, oh, and this is one, one, one theologian really, really gets snarky with this one. I have not phrased it so snarkily, if that's a word. But he says, we might, uh, yeah, we might question the plausibility of waking an infant in the middle of the night to have a new worldview spoken to them. Okay, so one, uh, one one New Testament scholar is like, listen, you're you're kidding me, right? They really because if this is a support for infant baptism, remember this happens in the middle of the night. This is a particular instance. He's like, you're telling me they they woke up infants to to hear the word and then get that. He's like, no way. Circumstantially, just no one would do that. And then finally, verse thirty four indicates the Philippian jailer believed in God with his whole household. Okay, not. He believed, look at that last part of verse 34, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's just, it's the ESV trying to, uh, it, it is one, it is a literal translation that obscures, it's, a, it's like, it's kind of the, one of those word for word Greek translations that obscures what the Greek is actually trying to say, unfortunately. Um, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on why that is, but essentially, um, essentially, it has to do with there being a, a singular. Uh, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There's the, they're saying the, the objection is: listen, the singular can't refer to the household; it's got to refer to him, the jailer. So what they're saying is what, what so what they're saying is the jailer had faith. Everyone was baptized, and then people who even maybe didn't believe because they were infants rejoiced, even though that they had either heard or even if they were adults had rejected the faith of the jailer. Okay, um, Greg Welty sums it up. Uh, he sums it up here. He said it points out it would be exceedingly strange if the whole household heard the gospel, the jailer believed the gospel, but the others rejected it. And then the whole household rejoiced that the head of the household believed while they themselves rejected the same message. <laughs> so even if you get the, even if you have this translation here and understanding, you still seem to end up with a, a view that doesn't necessarily support infant, in, infant baptism at all. Um, again, circumstantial evidence, even though it is speculative, speculative, circumstantial evidence suggests there is likely there weren't there were likely no uh, infants in this particular case, which leads to the principle of household baptism. A lot of Pado Baptists have realized this game that we're playing right here. They're like, listen, this is not going to go anywhere. Us speculating that the infants were present, the Baptists saying, well, no, they're not. Here are these things that suggest that they weren't. Uh, this is not going to be fruitful ground. So here's what we're going to do. This move says this. Listen, it doesn't matter whether infants are in here. Okay? It doesn't matter whether infants were in these examples. Here's what matters. We have a principle laid down. Household baptisms. That's what we see. That's the paradigm that we see. Whether there are infants in these particular cases that we see is an exercise in missing the point. 
what we need to come away with is a principle that the, the paradigm was baptizing households regardless of whether there's an infant got woken up at midnight or not. Okay? Surely if you baptize enough households, you will it will obviously and inevitably imply baptizing infants. We only go through so many households that don't have any infants. Okay? So if we adopt this, so this is an argument from the general principle. Okay? Let me give you three problems with that. It might, I think initially that sounds compelling. Sounds a lot more compelling than try to find infants in all the passages, in my opinion. But it, it's, it's, it's very deeply problematic. Let me tell you why. Okay? Number one, four of the five household baptisms, including the way I just argued the end of that, 30, verse 34, suggest that they positively suggest that the reason the household was baptized was not because the head of the household believed, but rather because there was a household conversion. That's what seems to suggest. Everyone received the word. Everyone heard the word. They were the first converts in Achaia. The whole household rejoiced because they had believed in God. Um, it seems like four out of the five explicitly say that the household was baptized. Yes, but they were baptized for a very specific reason, and it doesn't say it was simply because of the head of the house. You can go back and look at the other examples that I'm not talking about, um, and it explicitly it makes it very clear. For example, just, uh, just to read it, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the 18.8 example, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Okay, he believed in the Lord together with his whole household. So they were baptized. It's not a problem. Okay, four of the five suggests um, that there was a household conversion. And as it turns out, we're going to turn to the, return to this point in a second. Household conversion, as the gospel moves to unreached people group, is still incredibly common. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Second, second point here about the principle. Um, Paedo-Baptists rightly do not baptize adults who do not repent and believe the gospel. Right? You're not going to baptize an adult who doesn't believe the gospel. But here's the problem. If the general principle of household baptism inevitably will include baptizing infants in the first century, what, all, what else would it inevitably include? Baptizing adults. Because the first century household included the nuclear family, the extended family, you had your servants, right? You, you had adults. And you had older, unbelieving children that weren't infants. And so certainly, it, unfortunately, it, it argues too much. It argues too much. No Presbyterian uh, does this. No, no Presbyterian. Now, maybe you could say, well, that's just because they're inconsistent. Maybe, maybe they should. Maybe they should consistently be applying the sign uh, to people who don't say, no, I'm not, I don't really have any faith. I would say that they should because that's how the Abrahamic genealogical principle worked. Remember, if you were someone who was Abraham was was purchased in Genesis 17, you're to circumcise someone who you purchased with your money. It doesn't say anything about sharing the faith of Abraham. So you want to be consistent. I think that's what you should do. That's not what they do, though. So if the general principle of household baptisms would inevitably result in baptizing infants, it would also inevitably result in something that paedo-baptists reject, rightly so, and that is baptizing unbelieving adults. Finally, given the historically unprecedented nature of the book of Acts at the beginning of the church, 
One wonders if suggesting that every single pattern that we see laid out in the book of Acts is normative for Christian practice. A great one to ask our particularly our Presbyterian friends about who are all cessationists um, would be uh, would be what I mean, do you are we to expect speaking in tongues when someone repents and believes in the gospel as well, like we see so often in the book of Acts? Their answer, of course, will be no. Uh, and then you can ask, well, then why would we expect this to be necessarily the normative pattern? Okay, but let me do let me make this point. Um, and I've, I wrote it down very carefully here because I want to say it right. Um, it is worth mentioning that there is something normative about this, about the household piece. And here it is. If you if you understand the, the context more narrowly of Acts. That when the gospel pierces the hearts of an unreached people, socially arranged in a clan, tribe, household, socially, social situation, social structure, um, for the very first time, which is what we see in Acts, that's what happens, right? The gospel is coming to a people who are arranged in a household, clan, tribe-ish social structure for the first time. I would suggest that when the gospel goes to unreached people groups now who have a social cultural setup like that, we still see household conversions and subsequent baptisms, as frontline missionaries can attest. Okay? Um, so if we consider this narrower context, we might very well say that in such contexts, uh, household baptisms are probably going to be expected. And again, I went to a Southern Baptist, I grew up in the PCA and I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. Okay. So I've got, I have, and I've been in, and I've been, I've been in both kinds of churches. So I've got tremendous amount of uh, experience here in one sense of the word. Uh, and I'll say that at, 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 when I was in seminary, I would even watch documentaries about how, okay, this person goes into this unreached people group, this tribe, this jungle, and they're, uh, they're acting out the passion narrative, and they're putting one of their guys up on a... I mean, they are showing these people the gospel story, and at the end, I mean, it's like over. Like, every, when, when Jesus dies, people are like falling out on the ground. Like, what just happened? Like, they, they just can't even believe it. But then they get to the part where he was raised from the dead, and like the whole, tri the, the whole tribe following the leader of the tribe repents and believes the gospel. And they're all baptized. What I'm saying is when you go into unreached people groups that are arranged where there's a chieftain or tribal leader, head of house, and it's arranged like this, when that person believes, it's a persuasive thing where people follow suit, okay? They, they follow suit uh, because oftentimes that's how, for better or worse, uh, persuasion works. If this, I mean, probably, and everyone can relate to that in some sense. Man, if this person believes this, it's, it's got to be true. I mean, everyone's said that about something at some point in their life. But the idea is that's still how culturally, I would suggest it works in some of these narrow contexts, okay? Um, so here's what Baptists believe then about household baptism in light of a biblical theology. Read this slide with me. Baptists affirm the necessity of household baptism particularly of infants, on the basis of the head of the household, and that God's primary operative unit is still the family. You're like, wait a second, what did you say, Tyler? That's because they believe that those who enter into the household of God by being born from above 
are entitled to receive the covenant sign without delay as infants in Christ and children adopted into the family following the example and command of Christ who is the head of the household. It is a typology that reaches a fulfillment. Okay, it is a typology that reaches a fulfillment. There is now a household of God. Family is the number one motif used to describe the church. The body is actually the second. Family. You're grafted in, you are adopted into a new family. Brothers and sisters, you are in a new household. There is a head of that household, Ephesians 5.23. You are born not from flesh, but you are born, John 3, from above. Born again, you might say. It's translated both ways. Born from above, born again. And as an infant in Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.1, you should receive the covenant sign. That sounds a lot. That sounds like a lot of continuity, but at a fulfilled level, doesn't it? I mean, that when you read the first part of this slide, didn't you be like, weren't you like, what are you talking about? Baptists affirm the necessity of household baptism, particularly of infants, on the basis of the head of the household and that God's primary operative unit is still the family. If I didn't include the rest of the slide, you would think that that was a, a Presbyterian point. Am I right? But Baptists say, no, no, you, you, we already talked about with regard to the covenant and having the law partially written on our heart, that the, the accusation against our Presbyterian friends is that they have this biblical theology that's stuck in transition. They haven't gone the full distance in seeing the fulfillment of the promises in light of the covenant, and I would suggest that this is what it looks like. The primary operative unit uh, theologically now is the household that has been created on the by Jesus Christ and his work, okay? While still with the caveat that in these particular pioneer missionary situations, I do think you see conversion and, and baptism of whole households, whole tribes even, okay? Some of these documentaries are amazing. Any questions about that before I go on to the next point? Any questions about household baptisms in general? This particular slide. All right. Well, turn with me. This is over to Mark 13. There are parallels here, but I just want to... This one has always just been a really annoying one for me, honestly, but it's, it's used so much. Wow, that, that's really... was not working out well there. Uh, it, it is used so often as a support for infant baptism that, uh, and that children are a part of the covenant that uh, we have to do business with it here. I said Mark 13. I apologize. I meant Mark 10. It's going to be it's going to be uh, verse th uh, 13 through 16 that we're looking at. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him, the people, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And that is proof of infant baptism. It's like when I argue with my Catholic friends. It's like, I don't think that text means what you just said it means. Like, I don't, does anyone see anything about the covenant in this text? No. Does anyone see anything about baptism in this text? No, they don't. However, it is the text over and over and over brought up 
uh, to say, if the children are not, or, or the, to such belong the kingdom. I mean, if, if the children belong the kingdom, surely the sign of the kingdom belongs to them too. Um, and so here we are. Here's our argument for, it, it follows indirectly, it's a support for children being members of the kingdom and uh, in, in, in infant baptism being supported, okay? So part, part of me, honestly, in my heart, it'd be like arguing, I just feel like there are some things when people make a certain argument, it's like arguing with a like a flat earther. You're like, I feel like I dignify this argument by just responding, you know? But 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 because it appears so often, and, and because very, very, I mean, Calvin, for example, uses this over and over, you know, let's let's just how 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 should a Baptist respond to the suggestion that this passage suggests that infants should be baptized? A couple of objections here. Number one, there's no mention whatsoever here or in parallels that Jesus or his disciples baptized any of the children brought to him or that they were brought to him for any other reason than to receive a traditional blessing from an elder rabbi in accordance with common practice of the day. Look at what D.A. Carson writes on this. Children in Jesus' day were often brought to rabbis and elders to be blessed customarily by placing hands on them. This was a, this was a very customary thing that happened. Okay, It didn't start happening when Jesus showed up on the scene. Okay, This is just something that happened, that people would seek the blessing of of such a teacher. Objection number one. Objection number two. As a constant mistake, pedo-baptists errantly equate children with infants. Children aren't infants. We just baptized a child a couple months ago, right? Y'all remember, y'all were here. Jess is Elliot. She's not an infant. She's a child. They aren't the same thing. In the, in the arguments from church history and here, um, they always seem to equate children with infants, and they aren't the same thing. Baptists do not have a theological, though some do have a practical objection. There are some, I mean, what is it? I think in Dever, Mark Dever's church, they won't baptize you until you're like 18 years old, something like that. Is that right, Stephen? It's 16 or 18 uh, at Dever's church because they want to, I mean, but that's for practical, that's for different reasons, practical reason. Uh there's not a theological problem with uh, uh, baptizing children who show evidence that they understand the gospel and have repented of their sin. And this remains the case despite that Luke's, Luke 18 mentions infants brought to Jesus so that he might touch them as a part of this blessing. Okay, So it's an important point. When you see children mentioned, children and infants aren't the same thing. Children and babies aren't the same thing. Okay. Um, objection, objection number two. And then objection number three, I only put part of this one up here. Nothing about what Jesus says indicates that the kingdom belongs to physical children, but rather those who receive the kingdom of God such as children. That's what it says. Such as children, that is, as humble, dependent, trusting, and needy people, and not as those who can't sit still or require diaper changes. Okay? Listen to what it says, though. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder to them, for to such or such as belong the children. Uh, belong the children. Such as, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. The connection between such as children and whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it is, is unmistakable in my judgment. Okay? Children are seen as walking object lessons, perhaps even little sign acts 
one might say, of the posture required to enter the kingdom of God. That's the point Jesus is making. There's a particularly illuminating parallel in Matthew chapter 18 where the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. Remember that? And Jesus, calling a child to him, he says that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can I become like a physical child? Ah, maybe that's not the point. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? That's the idea that Jesus is teaching here. He is talking, he is, this is where the childlike faith comes in. He is using these children as object lessons for the posture of someone who is to enter the kingdom, particularly when his disciples are wondering who's the greatest. He's saying the way up here, the way up in this kingdom is down. And he's using the childish, adopt, not to adopt child, he's not, urging them not to adopt childish behavior, okay, but to adopt a childlike posture uh, that, that I've already articulated. Does that make, like to me, let me just ask, this is okay if someone disagrees, like that to me seems so obvious, this is one of the few times where it just seems so obvious to me it's almost difficult to have sympathy with any other view. Does that seem obvious to you, or is that like, no, I could totally see how someone could take that and mean that the kingdom of God belongs to, like, that, that, that children mean they're members of the kingdom. Does anyone see, does that sound like a plausible understanding of, of that? Okay. All right, objection number four is this. This is great. I love, I love this objection. This is the last one. In order to justify their practice from the text, the Pado-Baptist must assume that all of the children brought before Jesus were children of believers. Because that's their practice. When in reality, all sorts of people sought the blessing and healing of Jesus, and the vast majority of people who followed Jesus were not actually even true disciples. Nothing about this text suggests anything about the, the, the conduct or status or faith of the people who are bringing their children to Jesus. And of course, the, the, the paedo-baptistic practice is that the, the, the children of believing, Christ-following parents, or at least where one member of the household is believing, should be baptized. Again, you can't get that from this text. It doesn't say anything about the people who are bringing their children. It doesn't say anything about who are bringing their children People traditionally brought their children to elders and rabbis for blessings prior to Jesus. This is a very common practice during the day. Uh, so I just, I don't have a lot more to say about that one. Every single time it's brought up, I roll my eyes and I try to be, you know, I roll my eyes, not, not in person to someone, but when I read it, this, this whole shows up over and over again. It's just one of those that for me, maybe there's something in here stronger that I don't see, Okay. I mean, I've gone over this one a lot, though, and every single time I just cannot understand how this is compelling. To, I think the other arguments have way more weight than this one. This one just seems to me like a, a throwout, okay? But it is the one that shows up the most. I'm dead serious. It's one of the ones that shows up the most in the literature. All right, what do we have? Okay, 10 minutes. I think I can do this in 10 minutes. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know why I didn't. I'm doing this out of order. I meant to do this with Acts 2.39. I don't, I don't know what happened. Sorry, I just whiffed. I had it in a different place in my notes anyways. 
Um, this is uh, one of the texts that we already read, and, and this is supposed to support the idea of this kind of covenantal idea of external covenant membership, external holiness that we see in the New Testament, and that therefore children are members of the covenant because they are born to a, a, a believing parents, or at least one is believing. So Paul is giving instructions in chapter 7 on marriage, and he says this, that if any, starting in verse 12, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so the idea here is, see, they're not morally holy. No one's arguing that, okay? But they, holy means they're, they're included in the covenant. They are holy, being set apart. The children of believers are set apart. Set apart to what? Well, they're set apart into the covenant, of course. That's what the argument is supposed to be. Um, let me point out in responding here that the, the paedo-baptists has to assume an old covenant structure in the service of their exegesis here, where holy or sanctified, depending on what translation you read, same word, uh, made holy or sanctified is understood as this external covenant membership. And you might just think, well, hold on, wait a second, that's not even a legitimate category. Like, you got to put that, you got to bury that tool off your belt. Like, we don't have, that, that's not there. So you have to kind of I think import that as even a possibility. But they might say, well, listen, we're not importing it as a possibility. We're just concluding it from this text. Okay, perhaps so. Uh, um, but what else could it possibly mean? What else could it possibly mean except these children are included in the covenant? Okay? Nothing whatsoever about the old or the new covenant, again, is mentioned here. That's why I say it has to be brought in. Okay? It's got to be, it's gotta be the, 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 the structure that floats under the text for this one. Because again, just like in the children example, nothing in it about the covenant. We're not talking about the covenant. This passage has nothing to do with the new covenant. It has to do with marriage in Corinth. Okay? And they're asking particular questions about it. Um, let me give you the, the objection that I don't know why, and I'm still looking for it, but just doesn't ever seem to even be responded to. It's been pointed out by a lot of Baptists that what I'm about to say doesn't really even get much of a response here. Um, I remember I told you how uh, Pado baptists do not baptize unbelieving adults, right? But notice, the same thing that is said of the unbelieving spouse is said of the unbelieving child. For if the unbelieving, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, or literally, otherwise your children are unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So wait a second. The believing spouse makes the child holy, and therefore a member of the covenant and an appropriate object of baptism. Why not, the why not the unbelieving spouse? I mean, what's said of the child here has got to be said of the spouse. It's the same, same word. If the, if the believing spouse makes the unbelieving spouse holy, they make the child holy. Why is the child the only one uh, uh, included in the covenant in an appropriate object of baptism? It's simply inconsistent. 
in an attempt to try to say, the more you try to say they mean different things, you actually destroy Paul's argument because he's trying to make an argument from analogy. There's Kistemaker tries to, uh, I didn't include his quote here for the sake of time, but he tries to give this distinction between the one kind of holiness and then the other kind of holiness. That breaks down Paul's argument. He's trying to say something parallel here. All right, so there are at least, I would say, three different interpretations of this that are worth mentioning. Um, if we first, so the first uh, interpretation here, I don't think we'll get through all three, but that'll be fine. We'll, we'll still be able to close out next time. Um, oh, yes, I have that. So it, it, the first interpretation, if we look down further in the passage, verse 16, we'll see the initially shocking suggestion um, that believing spouses may save their unbelieving spouses. Look at this. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Of course, no one believes that spouses have the power to forgive sins or save their spouse. Rather, Paul is communicating something that a believing spouse is positioned to be a consistent influence Witness for Christ, seeking to win their children and their spouse for Christ, resulting them in resulting in them being, and this is 1 Corinthians 6.11, washed, sanctified, made holy, and justified. So it's the prospect of this, not a guarantee. It's not something that just automatically causally happens. Um, is explicitly given as the reason for remaining in such a marriage here. Seems to be the case. How do you know? I've, don't, if they consent to dwell with you, don't divorce them. How do you know? You, you may save them. But again, um, the in, this, this insight is on this understanding should be how we understand the sanctified or made holy. A believing spouse can sanctify their unbelieving spouse and children in the same manner that they can save them by being a faithful witness, holding out the hope of their repentance. And, and so believing spouses, Abraham's seed, who find themselves married to and sharing children with someone who is not Abraham's seed, someone who is not part of the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, should not put their spouse or their children away on account of godliness. Rather, they are to be the embodiment of godliness there in their home. Okay? That's kind of, the, that's the first interpretation. Um, I think the the one weakness of this interpretation is it is not really able to account well for. Um, it certainly makes a really good point about saving your spouse and how we should understand that, and then paralleling that with maybe the sanctifying aspect. But it doesn't have anything to say really about the reference to the uncleanness here. It doesn't have really anything to say about otherwise your children will be unclean. But what does that mean? Because unclean is going to be the opposite of unclean and unholy are going to be uh, unclean and unholy are going to be the opposite of holy. It also doesn't explain why the past perfect is used of sanctified, made holy, meaning something that happened in the past that has a continuing effect. So it's something that seems to have already happened in some sense. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and his un unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Um, again, because of the tense of that verb, what it suggests is there is something that actually happened 
whatever it is, uh, that it isn't merely probabilistic. So that's one of the, I don't know that those are insuperable objections, but certainly you got to say something about how children could be considered um, unclean. Um, okay, let me just give this last one real quick, uh, the second one real quick. Um, in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is discussing these principles for marriage, okay? And probably that's what the bold in your Bible even says. And uh, in verse 12 through 16, he's speaking specifically of mixed marriages. So you have two people who are unbelievers. The gospel comes to Corinth. One of them repents and believes. The other doesn't. Well, he's going to tell them even later in the same passage that, you know, if a widow, she can marry, but only in the Lord. The idea is you're not supposed to be married to someone who is not uh, in Christ. And the question situationally in this passage is, should the believing spouse put them and their children away as Ezra commanded the Israelites for the sake of holiness? And if you go back to Ezra chapter 10, it's a very difficult passage, but he says, listen, y'all have married these foreign wives. Y'all have these mixed marriages and these mixed children, and they got to go. They got to go. So I think we ask, well... I find myself with a belief, an unbelieving spouse. For, I mean, following Jesus, it costs you a lot. So should I, uh, do I have to leave them? Paul's answer is no, you should not. The spousal relationship is made legitimate and acceptable, which is how Paul is using the word holy here, not covenantally, uh, similar to how he is using it in 1 Timothy 4, 5. I'm just going to read that to you very briefly because I know we're short on time. He's talking about um, food. And if you look at 1 Timothy 4, 5, he's talking about people who re require abstinence from certain foods. He's critiquing this. And in verse 4, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, obviously, your McDonald's hamburger does not become a righteous, holy agent, okay? What he is talking about, it is, it, it is made acceptable, it is made legitimate if it is partaken in the right way because it's God's prerogative to give those things to his creatures. So that is how Paul is using holy here, in the same way that he's using it in 1 Timothy 4. It's not as common of a usage, True, but it's a, it's a known usage. And that's what he's saying. He said the spousal relationship is made legitimate and acceptable um, by the believing spouse. And this same legitimizing effect extends to your children. Listen, you came to faith in the Lord Jesus while you were married. You have these children. And so this is, but, but this is acceptable because of how you came into it. Otherwise, if you had just been a believer stepping into knowingly, intentionally, consciously marrying an unbeliever, that would, be, that would be pursuing something that was sinful. He said, this is not the same thing. Your faith, the fact that you uh, believe the gospel, it makes this arrangement holy. It makes this marriage legitimate, and it makes your kids legitimate in a way that is different under the new order of things than it would have been back in, in Ezra that it would have been back in Ezra where you would, for the sake of godliness, have to put them away. Uh, because of your faith under the new arrangement of things, you do not have to do that. That's what, that's what the passage argues, okay? All right, those are two interpretations. We need to shut it down for today. Um, 
I think a, a development, I'm going to give you the third interpretation. It's a development of that one, I think is my preferred where I land um, on, on, on this. Uh, but that, we'll have to save that for next time where I hope to finish out this, uh, the, this part of the Sunday School series in the critique of this uh, framework. Thank you for the extra uh, three minutes here. God, we pray that we would be faithful as we handle your word, handle these things, that we would think clearly, um, that, that we would not put our trust in a man, uh, uh, that we would search the scriptures like the Bereans ourselves to see if these things in true, are, are true and um, see if these explanations hold water. Be with us uh, in our worship hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.